Der deutsche Spargelkult müsse enden. Germany's beleaguered defense minister has temporarily dropped his PhD. Volkswagen ist eine Perle der deutschen Industrie. Und ich glaube, das kann man nicht sagen. Ich weiß, wie viel Liebe dahinter steckt. Wenn Glühweinstände aufgebaut werden, wenn Waffen. Spargelweltmeister ist China, denn die bauen sich. Hey, this is Ted. Hi, it's Michelle. Welcome back to Spaßbremse. We have a really nice episode queued up for you all today. The hosts of the Eurotrash podcast, Dominic Loister and Anton Jäger, join Ted to chat all things EU. Yeah, Dominic is a research director of the London School of Economics Global Economic Governance Commission, and Anton is a postdoctoral researcher at KU Leuven in Belgium. And I especially wanted to talk to them, um, well, one, just because they're smart guys and have a good podcast and are fun to talk to, but also because they're sort of on a similar crusade as we are to fight back against inane Anglo-political discourse about foreign countries. We, of course, try to do this for Germany, and they take on all of Europe and, and try to offer offer their perspective and their, their corrective about what they see as lacking. Um, and so I think it's a, it's a good discussion of what we wish we saw and, and sort of some, some unique takes maybe on, on Europe and Germany. Yeah, I think this conversation is a really great extension to our episode with Wolfgang Streeck. Both Dominic and Anton offer a sort of direct response to Streeck's interpretation of the current crisis moment and deliberate ways forward. Yeah, you'll, you'll notice they mention him by name and we engage with a lot of his ideas. So definitely go back and listen to our two-part interview with him. Uh, with Professor Streak, if you haven't already, uh, before listening to this, you can still listen to this. It'll make sense, but but it, it builds nicely on our previous content. And yeah, I think you'll all really enjoy this talk. You can also find the rest of the interview on our Patreon shortly as bonus content. And there we'll get more into depth about the specifics of the euro itself and European Monetary Union, sort of the foundation for all, a lot of these political and economic crises that we discuss in this part of the episode. Thank you so much to our listeners. We, as always, appreciate your support. Also, be sure to check out the Eurotrash podcast. They were also on The Dig recently. Yeah, we'll link to all that. And, and they're, they're both prolific tweeters, so we'll, we'll link to the guys as well. On to the episode. Enjoy. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Spaßbremse. I'm joined here by, actually, our first third-time guest we've ever had, uh, Dominic Loisda as well as Anton Jäger. Um, so welcome, guys. Thanks for coming on Spassbremse. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks ever so much. And so in addition to the, both of their uh, illustrious research careers, you've now both recently joined and rejoined the ranks of podcasters and have a, a great new podcast called Eurotrash, um, which I can highly recommend and will definitely link to in this show. And I want to cover, you know, all sorts of things with German political economy, um, Europe, European history, and so on in this episode. But before we get into that, uh, just to frame the discussion, I'd love to hear why you guys decided to start this podcast and what sort of angles you want to correct or what sort of narratives you wanted to offer uh, about Europe by starting Eurotrash. I think there was an impression, I mean, to be perfectly honest, uh, the, the starting point was simply that we wanted to record um, the conversations that we already had on a, a you know, semi-daily basis. 
Um, maybe have an interesting guest on, usually our friends. Um, we thought there might be um, a market for that, but also there seemed to be a niche or a, a, a gap um, in public conversation, which is that there wasn't really any, um, in our view, you know, high quality English language um, commentary on Europe or from a European perspective that wasn't from the left that wasn't terribly um parochial and also could somehow engage uh, in an informed way with uh, global politics and uh, and sort of try to put european events into um into a broader context and some of the misconceptions i think um that that um abound on on the left but also in sort of the the more uh, you know centrist liberal um commentariat is that you know this whole um the current phase of European integration, which is centered on the monetary union and the single markets, has sort of reached um an impasse and that it's dysfunctional beyond reform and that that there's some sort of viable political and institutional alternative uh, that is within reach for um, a large enough political coalition within Europe. And I think we definitely share that. You know that that sort of um, pessimistic view of of euro crisis policymaking, but I think it's important not to forget why the euro the eurozone in particular and and the uh, European um, economic and monetary union uh, generally was created. It was created to to solve very real issues, economic and political, that um, probably would pose a greater threat to. Um, national policy space, in particular, um, social democratic or socialist uh, policies, than the year does itself. Yeah, the only thing I'd add for the motivations that made us start the podcast is that there's a strange feature of European integration, certainly after Maastricht, is that it hasn't really annulled or transcended national political cultures as such. So certain national conversations has, have remained quite parochial also because of the specifically intergovernmental nature of European integration. And this means that although so much policymaking happens on a European level, that is usually the domain of Eurish specialists, as they say, that don't really, I think, lead into a much broader debate in the public sphere. So we're trying to transcend a certain parochialism, which is aggregates specific national conversations and also speak to a more Anglo-Saxon audience that, still has a woeful misunderstanding of some of the issues in the European setting. And I mean, I basically agree with what um, Dominic has been saying also about the Eurozone debate is that framing something as a bad solution to a real problem doesn't mean that the real problem thereby disappears. So the German centricness of the system he describes in the 1980s, where people were basically locked into this high cycle and subject to any of the whims that Bundesbank was subject to, does call forth the question whether, for example, the European Central Bank is just a replica of the Bundesbank as such, and whether you want a system where you basically subject to a Bundesbank that is far more orthodox and far more stringent than anything a supranational superbank would engage in, and what your alternative to this system looked like. Well, of course, Strake has, Wolfgang Strake rather, has proposed versions of this, and we can get to those later. But at the same time, the burden of proof lies with you in formulating an alternative to the specific system and saying, okay, what 
would a world without this monetary union look like and what kind of policy options would it give the various national actors? Well, that sets up perfectly sort of where I wanted to start this conversation. Um, something about the current energy crisis, because that, that certainly wraps up all of this. And something um, that is, is definitely on a lot of people's minds, we're recording now in late October. So there have been these like really dire forecasts that we could have uh, rolling blackouts. Uh, we could have, you know, people not being able to heat their homes. It seems like some of those really grim forecasts have waned a bit. Part of that is, um, as you mentioned, you know, the the tie to the U.S. and the liquefied natural gas from the U.S. replacing some of the, the Russian flows. What is your analysis of the current situation um, on energy, both on its sort of its own level, and then what that actually means for this broader, uh, the, the broader um, European economic project? Because you also have these extreme kind of scare tactics, uh, scare messages going on. Uh, Deutsche Bank, I think, was the latest saying, you know, we could see like real kind of deindustrialization in Germany and so on. So what do you make of this both in the sort of immediate, are we going to freeze this winter and uh, will all the factories close? I, th I think I'm more of a conspiracy theorist on this who thinks that the entirety of European policy is now determined from Langley, Virginia, and Biden is doing a version of the Morgantown plan to deindustrialize Germany. But I'll get to my point first, and I'll first uh, leave Dominic to deflate some of those claims because he's had some very convincing arguments also in a comparative setting on why the stories about deindustrialization are partial deindustrialization through American bellicosity Ukraine um, are very overdrawn. So I'll let Dominic make his point first and then I'll respond. I'll try to to keep my comments on like the foreign policy stuff to, to a minimum, not being that it not being my, my milieu really. Um, on the geopolitics, I can say a few things, but the, the energy situation is such that um, I think Germany will have enough, has, has, has sufficient LNG storage to, to weather a mild winter, even without any Russian gas. And I think um, that's the scenario we're, we're faced with. On the deindustrialization front, I mean, that, that sort of moots the discussion about deindustrialization, I think. My, my point would be that um, Germany isn't the only country currently with a large manufacturing base that is facing these sort of uh, pressures on the wholesale gas and electricity markets. Um, every country that relies on offshore LNG or coal is facing a similar price shock. You can name Singapore, Taiwan, or South Korea, or Japan even. Um, though Japan has a nuclear fleet, which they're putting online again, so it's probably a different example. There, no one is talking about deindustrialization there. And to deindustrialize, you have to essentially lose um, competitiveness via your vis-a-vis uh, -vis your peer countries, which is something that depends on sort of medium-term factors. So if you're uncompetitive in the medium term, you you'll, you'll probably deindustrialize in in a, in a partial sense. And I don't think that's happening. There's no evidence to suggest it, to suggest it is, frankly. And I don't know what Anton uh, has to say about it being a, a deliberate sort of, um, you know, strategy by by the U.S. I, I don't think that. I, I agree that with Anton that part of how the U.S. has dealt with the fallout of the Ukraine war has been to, um, you know, bring Europe even more under one command. To serve its larger, also global geopolitical aims, also vis-a-vis -vis China, that's certainly true. But if that is true, then I don't think that the other the statement about it being another Morgenthau plan can be true, because of course they would they would want fairly strong, capable allies. Um, 
if if they are to take care, of, so to say, of Russia, well, the U.S. can focus refocus on China. Um, what is true, though, however, that, that, that there's a certain amount of hypocrisy to this sort of um, uh, you know Atlanticist uh, free riding claim about defense, namely that yeah, it's true that people are not spending their their their, their fair share on the defense bu- defense budget, two percent of GDP. What they should spend, and they 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 definitely um, they don't get even come even close, or at least haven't until now. Um, but if it were simply about free riding, the U.S. would support the Macron uh, idea of having a European command and uh, some sort of um, rearmament of the European level, possibly led, led, by, led by France, as Anton said, and that might explain, I think, Germany's uh, position on the on on Russia, even though it's quite harmful to them in the short term. But the U.S. is very much opposed to that, and I think that's how you should read all these um, these uh, defense free riding um, issues. So I, I, I'll, I'll let Anton go um, go full conspiracy theory now. I think those are all very good points, and certainly Dominic's last point that if you want Europe to contribute to your encirclement of China and basically neutralize Russia on their costs, then it doesn't make sense to wreck the continent economically. You want Germany to retain some exporting power so it can actually finance rearmament. And in that sense, a new Morgantown plan just sounds geopolitically quite stupid because it would shrink the financial base on which you'd keep these allies. Um, that nonetheless, even if the threat of total deindustrialization, even pardon, deindustrialization is overdrawn, and I think Dominic's comparative angle with Taiwan and Korea is very convincing. Nonetheless, it's not clear to me that the current drive towards war or the continuation and perpetuation of the situation is in any way economically beneficial to Europe or Germany as such. Um, so even if it's not threatening it with deindustrialization, it is uh, leading to bankruptcy, certainly in certain sectors, it is not economically beneficent. And there you basically have to ask the question, what is it with German elites that makes them prefer submission to these US security interests rather than pursue something that might keep their domestic manufacturing base even more intact. And there I think we basically have to return to the trade-off between either having an independent security pole on the continent in which France is dominant because it does have that nuclear option even though it's economically weaker or being subject to American imperatives and taking some of the economic hits for this. And I think their German policy leads have basically decided, well, it's preferable that we're submitted to the US and this might entail some economic costs. So having to buy loads of uh, LNG, which is now subject to price gauging, etc., or having to cooperate with France on equal terms, but thereby becoming a junior partner in military terms and losing some of the privileges that we have in the current arrangement. And I think German elites have made their choice there, say, okay, we're going to suffer some economic damage in the short run, but we don't want to give up that dominant position within a European setting vis-a-vis France uh, anytime soon. Yeah, I don't, I don't blame you for a slightly conspiratorial attitude because it's like by, by escalating tensions a bit in, you know, in Ukraine. Obviously, not, not saying, not one of these people that says like the U.S. made Russia invade, but you know, there were certain decisions taken that that made tensions, violence more more likely than not. 
they, they do this, they get their war, they send a few old old weapons, you know, from the 80s, destroy the Russian military with those, um, get all the Europeans scared, get them to, you know, get even more firmly in the U.S. camp. And then, oh, by the way, yeah, you're not having any gas. Well, we've got LNG for you. Like just the from from all the U.S. decline things from a couple of years ago and the breakup of the transatlantic relationship and Trump and all this. And then in, you know, the span of like six, seven months now, it's just completely reversed and really looks like a, a masterstroke. Yeah, it's very impressive and convenient. And I do think Shrake was right to talk about Return of the King. But some people, certainly with the Morgantown interpretation, are saying that partial deindustrialization in Germany is going to increase manufacturing capacity in the US. And I find that far more implausible story. I don't think the US is actually capable or willing to reshore some of those industries by basically nuking or doing a controlled demolition of the German economy through these LNG uh, imports. I think Dominic should say a bit more about this, but I think the game plan is something very different. Well, the strength of the dollar would seem to make that pretty difficult to make the US any kind of manufacturing exporter on a large scale again. And I mean, maybe we could say- That's right, exactly. I think the Morgenthau argument is funny. I mean, we we didn't know, I never knew that would become, uh, our podcast logo would become very relevant and actually uh, discussed if it was coming back. in Morgenthau plan 2.0, but it seems like maybe it's like uh, you get the Morgenthau plan or else like, you know, buy our buy our uh, expensive LNG. So the, the reason I don't support, I don't think that there is an indirect sort of nefarious uh, attempt to deindustrialize Germany is true. And it's not only because there's no evidence for it, it's that because, because it's not necessary. I mean, the United States is beggaring its European neighbors through the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. So the, the way this uh, piece of legislation is cementing American hegemony um, for decades to come is one, the semiconductor um, ban in uh, China. So um, the fact that all European, uh, all American um, uh, employees at uh, Chinese firms were forced to resign, et cetera, et cetera. And that that takes care of China also because they are dependent on semiconductors from 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 Taiwan, but in the on the European side, don't forget that this uh, this act provides tax credits for um, electronic vehicles produced in the U.S., Canada, and Mexico, so in the NAFTA region, and that makes you know they they want to make EVs more accessible and affordable to low income households. Um, but the IRA requires so the Inflation Reduction Act requires EV batteries. Um, to be made in North America. Um, and they have a lot of the minerals required. They're going to be the biggest lithium producer in a few years. And that is a, a mighty and very direct blow to European uh, and, of course, also Chinese um, attempts at taking advantage of the, the whole green growth boost uh, in the next decades uh, and the, the, the boost in, in the jobs that might come from it. In fact, it will lead to business moving away from Europe, European car makers, European uh, battery producers, and the, the, their equivalents in China to the US, um, also leaving um, quite a bit of uh, unemployment and indeed deindustrialization in that sense in its wake. That's the thing we should be focusing on. It's a very direct, very conscious act of uh, sort of beggar their, beggar, beggar their neighbor, um, you know, chicanery, if you like. And it's sort of, um, I, I don't want to, you know, quote kissing her on your podcast, um, it being sort of a left-wing podcast, but I think it's, people have to, you know, 
keep in mind that you know the United States doesn't have enemies or allies; it has interests, and and those interests change over time. And um, I do think there's a perception in Europe, and there have been a lot of c- complaints after the act was passed that this is um, not how an ally should should behave. But I don't think there's any European capacity to respond uh, uh, in a way that doesn't risk pissing off the people in charge. Um, it's a little funny when the Germans are saying that about the U.S., like the, the U.S. economic policy as well. They're passing this 200 billion energy package that was not coordinated yeah, yeah, apparently sure. at all with other European countries. And it's like, yeah. I, I sort of beggar thy neighbor all the way down. I mean, it's you, you start yeah. getting into tricky situations when you start accusing one party of that. The, so I would return again to my conspiracy view, because what you are seeing in the internal American setting is a unique alignment between three factions of the American state or capital which hasn't been possible for a while. So what Dominic is saying is true, but I don't think it's mutually exclusive with the desire on behalf of the US to extend the Russian-Ukrainian war and thereby weaken some of these competitors in a geoeconomic sense. So the Inflation Reduction Act and basically doing green Trumpism without Trump, because that's what it is. I don't think we should say it's anything else. The Fed hiking and thereby forcing the entirety of the world and also Europe into this hiking cycle, while at the same time readying parts of American capital for the green transition, both the Russian-American war and Fed hiking all fit into this pincer movement that aligns all of these American interests on one dimension, which is quite a rare occurrence insofar as American capital and American policy elites have been in cahoots or have disagreed on a lot of things for a long time. And actually, Biden has managed to do this passive revolution that basically groups them together again, which is quite impressive. And that makes me think that Strake might be onto something with the idea that the resubordination, the resubmission of these allies fits into a much broader pattern. Yeah, I want to pick up this this kind of question of, of European submission to the US and if there's any way out of that, because the big, the sort of looming thing in all of this is uh, that I guess sort of the history of NATO more broadly is you sign up for protection against Russia, but you uh, is it what you think you're signing up for. But what you actually get is you get to tag along for the broader U.S. foreign policy adventures. Um, you know that used to be the Middle East. Now, of course, it's containing China. But just to, to close a bit on the the energy topic, I mean there there has been some some policy moves to try to shield European consumers and businesses from these, you know, really eye-wateringly high gas prices we've seen at various points. I mentioned the 200 billion that, that Germany offered, which would also be um, done done sort of the off books in like a Sondervermögen um, way, I believe. Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, I think um, looking back on the last um, 10 years, you, you, it's hard to separate Germany's current predicament from the legacy of Angela Merkel. As I, I wrote a bit about this when um, she was replaced by uh, the, the the incumbent Olaf Scholz in October, I think last year. Streeck's view, though I think his writing on Merkel was always very thoughtful and stimulating, was that she's the, the ultimate first-month politician who has no real um, guiding framework and just reacts to everything that she encounters um, in the most expedient way. Is not quite true. She had a very, um, to me, very consistent view of how economic governance should look like. And part of that, or the result of that economic governance framework was um, 
a total dearth of investment during this period. This also meant that Germany's green ambitions, though in other way quite successful and interesting, um, and that deserve praise, and I think this is somehow lost in the discussion about Germany. Um, yeah, this podcast itself is is sort of uh, um, in the business of like professional Germany bashing, which I, I completely support, but then otherwise the renewable push has been quite impressive. I say we're more in the term of Anglo boosterism about Germany bashing. You know, like I think yes, I think exactly. they can yeah. it can seem like it's the same thing, but it's it's actually you're, different. No, you're I mean, right. There's I have, yeah. we we have both sort of voted with our feet to to leave yeah, the yeah. United States and, and come to come to Berlin. So I think yeah. uh, we, we do have some fondness for the country. We've just grown very, very weary of seeing uh, Germany, the liberal paradise, you know. Yeah, all the hagiography about Germany, in particular about Merkel, is yeah needs some pushing it back against. I think you're doing a good job on that. But on the green, on the energy policy part in in Germany, the problem was that there was too little investment into things like electrification, and therefore into things like heat pumps, which um, are the way you you get households to move away from gas for domestic heating, which is the main uh, source of um, the demand for natural gas in, in, in Germany. Obviously, the industrial feedstock is quite important too, but I think that can be solved more quickly by, um, you know, I think there, there's more, the incentives to invest at the firm level are different, but you need to give households an incentive to invest in uh, heat pumps. And that requires far more coordination and far more, um, concerted effort at, at a industrial strategy and spending uh, um, a reasonable amount of money, which uh, the Merkel uh, administrations were not um, happy doing. Um, I should also mention in this context that there's an, an extra disincentive for households to invest, given the very peculiar pricing system that, that exists in Europe, um, which also kept people hooked on Russian gas, which is that it's and I don't want to get into it. It's, it's quite complicated, but essentially it's called pay as you clear. In other words, the so-called marginal pricing system in which the marginal input into the energy bid stack, which is the most expensive input, which is gas in this case, determines the overall the the eventual market price of electricity, or the wholesale price of electricity, which means that the price of gas, if there's enough demand, in other words, is more or less is, is this will determine the price of electricity. So if there's no incentive to electrify, if you're going to be paying as much as you would uh, if you stay on gas. And I think that's that's been quite important everywhere to um, uh, to, to, to disincentivize households from electrifying uh, their heating. But also it, it nullified, let's say, the French success in having a nuclear fleet. In, Fran in France, elect electric, electric power was as expensive as it was in Germany, regardless of how much gas they used and how much uh, how many nukes they had in line, because of this pricing system. And there doesn't seem to be there was a, a proposal from Spain to reform this system, but there isn't. It, it's a system that that goes back to the early designs of the energy market and sort of assumed that markets will always, you know, work perfectly and that um, you know you want to. You know, keep incentives, um, market incentives to invest in green energy um, upright, even though the solution should be that you have public investment and subsidies to... to, to we can link to your Trash Future episode you did about this. Yeah, 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 Dominic yeah. has a great interview. If you can make through make it through the first half hour where they're just talking about calm the whole time. But uh, if, you, if you skip to the second half, Dominic has a... Great, yeah. great wealth of information about European energy markets. So the, the story thing, the story about Germany um, being naive about um, 
the geopolitical consequences of, of using Russian gas is, is, is I think, true. But um, there are broader issues at, uh, issues at stake in, within Europe. And I also think that other countries are in a much worse position, especially in Eastern Europe, but also Italy um, is equally dependent on Russian gas. And they haven't done anything about it um, so far since the war, partly because they don't have the financial firepower. And I think there's a moral dimension to this, which is important, is that people like this supposed hegemon, hegemon sorry, having its comeuppance after all its post-historical free writing in the 2000s. So the flip side to the Anglo-boosterism we talked about is a certain relishing attitude on behalf of conservatives that say that Germany basically tied itself into all these international arrangements which propped up authoritarians abroad and now it finally has to pay up for all its sins. But I think a much more plausible interpretation, as Dominic said, is that the reason Germany is in this position now and the rest of Europe is that we shouldn't let Merkel off the hook for basically supporting austerity once again. It's not so much geopolitical naivete rather than the preference for austerity, which has really locked us into this current arrangements. We've made it far more difficult to invest in these alternative energy sources. And again, the primary story should be how it is the problem of public investment rather than naivety on a geopolitical level that really explains our current situation. So again, Schrick is right that Merkel is the one to blame, but not for the reasons which a lot of people think it actually is. It's more that she was an austerian rather than a Russian appeaser, because I do think there's almost a slightly xenophobic underline in that the relationship of further to the Russian elite or German relationship to Russia in general. It's more that Germany supported austerity on a continental scale and thereby made it far more difficult to initiate a proper clean transition rather than cozying up to these oligarchs, etc., etc. Of course, that happened too, but it's not the primary reason why we're in this current situation. Right, because now it seems like the effort is just to cozy up to a new batch of oligarchs and authoritarians. It's not like the actual moral dimension is, is changing that much. And I mean, I, I find myself sometimes like rushing to Germany's defense now when all the Atlanticist talks are going on about, you know, how every everything they've done is evil and they're, you know, appeasing and they're not, you know, sent, sending enough weapons or being hawkish enough, you know, what, whatever yeah, that, it is. I find myself saying like, wait, 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 you're kind of Germany did the wrong thing, but they're actually coming at it from the wrong way. Yeah, the etiology of the situation does matter because it leads to very different conclusions. If you think it's about cozying up to the wrong elites, well, then you, they should cozy up to other elites. Or if you say no, it's because they didn't have the proper uh, policy uh, platform and basically supported austerity. That's what caused the current situation. That leads to very different conclusions. But I'll let Dominic add something. Yeah, I've been I've been happy to see Merkel's legacy take a nosedive, but mm. it's not taking a nosedive for why I would want it to. One thing um, that I think has to be added is that there's almost no country in the world that is self-sufficient on, um, on energy um, terms. In other words, it, it, most countries depend on crucial energy imports. I think U.S. policymakers and comment, uh, commentators are always very smug about their own position, but the U.S. is a vast continent Um I'm going to be very controversial now. The U.S. was born out of people being successful at that which the Nazis failed at, which is eradicate an entire continent for vast spates of land full of natural resources. That's what, and they're safe because they're, um, they're the stopping power of water on both sides, and they have insignificant uh, um, countries bordering them, so they're completely safe. 
and the US and maybe Brazil uh, and a couple of other countries are the only countries that have enough Australia may again another successful extermination uh, land grab of a vast country full of natural resources and Russia of course and some Saudi countries but no other country can actually claim to have in place an energy um, mix that is um, resilient to these kind of shocks and free from geopolitical dependency as a function of energy energy import dependency so people have to, should not forget how much uh, of global um, politics is determined by these sort of geographic starting historical starting positions so the thing that we have to fault countries for including germany and other european countries is simply not getting simply not seeing the light and thinking two steps ahead about green industrial policy and then we get back to the the inflation reduction act and what that really is about is also preventing Europe are becoming more energy self-sufficient and also becoming more prosperous uh, by finally now doing green industrial strategy, but not being able to because of the uh, the sort of anti-competitive um, beggar the neighbor nature of the of the um, of the new Biden um, Act, and that's the context in which we have to see um, these developments, in my view. Yeah, it's like the the U.S. is sort of seems to be adopting the the J. Paul Getty quote as they're like. Uh economic policy recommendations of uh, rise early, work hard, and strike oil. It's his, his famous <laughs> quip for how to achieve success. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, it's. I mean, I'm sure Germany would love to find some shale oil, but uh, yeah. it's, it's yeah. not exactly a, a model that works for everybody. And European energy independence is a very old story. It basically dates to the fading of coal in the post-war period. So it's not as if this was deliberately engineered as well. Sometimes some of these Atlanticists seem to speak to Germany as if they almost purposely tied themselves into these ties of interdependency. This dates from a long time ago, and as Dominic says, pretty much no country, certainly in Europe, has the energy mix that makes it completely autarkic in terms of provision. Yeah, and you see this the, this backward-looking thing, too, to like take broader issue at, like... Uh... Wandel durch Handel and like Ostpolitik and all of this being like, like somehow you could draw a line from like Brandt to like Nord Stream 2 or something. And it's like, it doesn't follow in one. I think that it doesn't give enough credit for how actually effective on its, on just a purely like Realpolitik way that Ostpolitik was. Like it wasn't about appeasement. It was about geopolitics and it worked. More on this topic, right, of, of European sort of subordination to the US. Like it, it looks really, I mean, you know, if I were someone that, uh, believe a European who wanted greater autonomy the last year or so seems extremely dire. Like it just seems like right, right when it's sort of, everyone was talking about multipolarity and like all the, all the think tank analyses where, you know, how Europe can thrive in a multipolar world and this idea that there's going to be like the U S and China. And then Europe is, is like this very third thing, like, like sort of balancing between the two. And that like, that seems like ancient history now when you see those, those sort of reports and op-eds is there like, is this strategic autonomy talk that was really largely like a French project, uh, but the Germans started adopting it as well, um, especially under the Trump administration. They, they started sort of coming around to those ideas a bit. It, do we think that's totally dead and buried or, or could there be, you know, if say Trump comes back in 24, like, is there, is there a way to like re to, to disentangle from the U S again, or attempt to at least. Um, it's hard to see in which any way in which, um, Europe could dis, you know, disentangle itself from um, from the United States, let alone displace the U.S. in in, in any 
part of the spectrum globally. The dollar is still the the, the key currency in, in trade invoicing and, and the money markets with huge consequences for Europe as well. I recently joked that the only place in which the only way in which Europe has been able to assert its um, global influence is the uh, GDPR regulation, the, the data, data privacy regulation, which is incredibly annoying and pointless and boring. But I thought it would be it's, it's a fitting revenge to for the the sort of you know fascist drudgery of airport controls post nine eleven, which are now also global uh, the global norm. But um, less flippantly, I, I mean. You're not excited about the USB-C charger on your phone? I mean, this is this is global, yeah. no, the, the, global the, Europe. The, the, the European regulatory um, spillover, that thing is, is it will march on regardless, but it has obviously no bearing on, on global events. Um, I, I do think that you know, US full-spectrum hegemony will be maintained in the foreseeable future, regardless of uh, what I see as very significant social economic decline within the uh, domestically in the US. I think Europe is just going to be a player in, uh, you know, uh, a, a distant and remote figure in all of this. Um, the people who matter are China and the US, and Europe is going to be either the bleating lamb sort of following in the US's wake, or it's going to try to get a shit together but run into a war quite quickly. There is a scenario in which Europe um, manages to issue its own debt securities, maybe then make the euro more of a key currency globally, and then it would have more spending power domestically. And then it could actually invest at the European level very heavily in industrial strategy and green uh, green energy. But that is um, a remote and very unlikely scenario, given the, the very fraught politics and the the, the some, some very limited um, imagination uh, of, of the people who are in charge at the moment. And I think there was a confusion about the supposed Trumpite interregnum after 2016, in which the space for European strategic autonomy certainly or suddenly seemed larger because the flippancy or the uncontrollability and unpredictability of the Trump administration suddenly allowed for policy space. But I don't think that's what actually happened. What we see now is that Biden is continuing with some of the decoupling that was first initiated under Trump, that it's, as with any supposedly isolationist policy, which also has its own conception of international order, more an attempt to strengthen American engagement and hegemony across the world rather than to weaken it. And I do think Streik is very right that any of the proposals you still see for strategic autonomy, whether it's on behalf of Schäuble or some of the French ones, are highly unlikely and constrained both by the dollar and the current drive towards NATOification across the continent. So it's not just about Sweden joining, but it's also the more that the political center of NATO moves eastwards in Europe, towards Eastern Europe, the more it moves westwards and to Washington, because the relationship of these eastern states to Washington is much more intimate than, say, France or even Belgium. Um, etc. And I don't see the situation changing in the near future um, in any way. I think Strake is right. The resubordination has been pretty successful. And even if Trump wins again in 2024, which is an open question, of course, I don't think this pattern will be broken. Um, it'll just continue because you see enough continuities between Biden and Trump on this anyway. And so another another big trend in Europe that we haven't gotten to um, really at all, but that is extremely significant, is the 
sort of continuing rise of the far right in, in some countries. I mean, everyone was talking about the sort of populist decade after 2010, but it looks like there's some very, um, you know, sort of post-fascist parties in Italy or the Sweden Democrats in Sweden coming to power. This And the, the broader rise of the EU is like a civilizational project, or right? this is what, what Hans Kudnani has written about, sort of civilizational turn, I think he calls it. It seems to me like there could be some sort of tension between this kind of cultural exceptionalism in Europe and then total subordination to the US. And I just wonder, I wonder how long that can persist. I mean, or is this going to be sort of a more shared transatlantic project of, of whiteness on some level? Like, I, do you see any interplay here between the this, this sort of racial civilizational turn and the, the foreign policy dynamics? I think whiteness is one way to do it. What you already see with Fratelli and you also see this with far right parties in Western Europe is they're far more eager than any of their 20th century predecessors to draw inspiration from the American far right. So whether it's about the vocabulary, which is mainly of American coinage, whether it's about the increasing insanity of the GOP, they find it far easier to mirror themselves in that rather than the tacit anti-Americanism, which, for example, you still had with Italian fascism in the post-war period. So the MSC, which was the predecessor of Fratelli, actually was quite strongly anti-Americanist. You also see this in the case of the French far right, which really had these European civilization ideas as an alternative pole to American dominance. But much of that has actually weakened, and I think the identification with the American far right has become much more plausible than it was in previous periods. And you already see this in practical terms, is that Fratelli is in no way seeking to break the Atlanticist alignment and is continuing with NATO orthodoxy in a way that is explicitly pro-Atlanticist. Yes, yeah, 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 definitely. Although there are some issues about Ukraine, of course. There, there is some disagreement in Salvini in a difficult spot there, but I don't think any of it is significant enough to tail an independent policy line. Yeah, I mean, you also see, right, like Orban at, at CPAC, or um, or I know I saw the, there was a clip on Fox News of them, you know, applauding Maloney and, and her, her rise to power in the very cringeworthy American way of being like, actually, I'm Italian, so I'm so glad to see that the Italians are, it's just like people that are probably one-eighth Italian, like couldn't speak a lick of it, but going on <laughs> about their Italian roots and how they're so glad that, well, the Italians said no to big government socialism. <laughs> I think that wraps it up on the the politics front for, uh, for what I wanted to talk about. I mean, I know... Uh, you know, just been talking for just over an hour now. Obviously, it's a it's a huge huge area to cover, but I think we've done done a great job of of weaving in some of your guys' arguments into the the current developments. So um, before we close out, would you would you have any sort of final no notes on the the politics and economics of Europe that we've been talking about? So I think um, Europe is the most developed part of the capitalist world. I think still the of the of the advanced economies still, given that how extraordinarily unequal. Um, the United States is as a country and has these, these large pockets of, of, the, of, the, of the second world, if you like, uh, and, and a, lot, a lot of deprivation around, that goes around, doesn't have any welfare provision to speak of. But unlike, the, unlike Europe, or rather Europe has done better to self-inflict a series of wounds over the last decades that unfortunately have made Europeans much, much poorer and have also not quite foreclosed on, but that have you know, threatened your future growth prospects and also future prospects of um, 
solving or addressing the climate crisis in an effective way. The point is that these were self-inflicted wounds and that there is no, apart from these resource constraints that we talked about, there isn't actually that much of a reason why they can't do better. I think um, there's there's a lot of need for, I think, political action and concrete plans also on the left to, to um, demand that people uh, reform the Eurozone and the European politics uh, in order to guarantee that um, investment can be increased and um, growth you know, rejuvenated so that Europe prevents its decline into uh, poverty and irrelevance. I have little to add to that. I just want to zoom out about the broader historical role that Europe plays in the 20th century because I think that the out um, or the foresights are uniformly bleak. The only space for optimism I see is that we're now entering the 21st century in which the provincialization of Europe is even more complete and drastic than anything we saw in the 20th century. So you have the rise, as I say, in cliche of a multipolar world in which Europe really has to engage on an equal footing with all these new players. And that in itself is interesting because it requires a degree of self-perfection in Europe, which I think Europeans have long not been capable of, and now they have to see themselves in a new light. Unfortunately, as Dominic says, so much of this provincialization has been self-provincialization. They've marginalized themselves in the history because they've inflicted all these stupid decisions on themselves. And that means that Europeans can look at themselves in a new, um, I think, more relative life. But sadly, it's mostly because they've just put themselves on the sideways rather than actually um, steer historical developments themselves. Yeah. Now, I mean, I think you, you guys would echo what I would think on that, too, where it's sort of there's these very sort of depressing policy decisions and, and seemingly sort of irreconcilable um unclearable hurdles and yet there's no place i'd actually rather be than in europe you know especially one of the, the wealthier countries like germany you know being from the us or uh, having spent a good amount of time in the uk as well like it's just you're like okay well no this is this is very very bad here and makes you know makes germany feel a lot better by comparison in in terms of the different branches of grand hotel abyss as we talked about <laughs> with dominic before uh, it's a good place to sit out post-history and await the apocalypse it's uh it's convenient. It, it's still a good welfareist uh, holdout. And I would like to add from a chauvinistic continental Europe perspective that decline can be beautiful if you know how to be decadent. Unfortunately, in order to be decadent, you need like a minimum amount of culture, which unfortunately is not present on the other side of the North Atlantic. Therefore, it's nice to decline in Europe. Good. We've got our conspiracism <laughs> and we've got our chauvinism on the podcast. We're, we're in good shape. Um, I appreciate that, uh, Dominic. I've trekked all the way over here just yeah, to decline exactly. with you guys. <laughs> you dumped ship. Yep. Okay. Well, now, uh, you know, a couple more lighthearted questions to, to close it out. Uh, so we, we identify all these problems, the sort of, you know, secular decline that we maybe are all facing. Uh, how could it have been any different, Dominic? I know you have a little uh, pet theory that goes all the way back to the, the First World War about how, how, how European history could have been different. Could you outline that? Well, I, so the, it, 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 it's worth seeing. This is very nerdy, and I don't want to go too deep into the intellectual stakes of this debate because it's deep into like historical political economy, um, the, the, the academic conversation you know, between people like Charlie Meyer and, and, and Barrington Moore Jr. and Adam Tooze. 
but there's a way of viewing 20th century history and Europe's place in it around this framework of uneven and combined development. And that a lot of the conflicts in the earlier part of the 20th century result from the partial modernization of parts of the industrialized world, particularly Europe, and of course there's Japan, the United States as well, but by virtue of its size and its resources and the ability to produce, uh, uh, to be productive agriculturally, but also industrially, um, it, it never had, um, it never fell into this hole. And it was actually, it became the country that could stabilize the world system by intervening in these conflicts that eventually arose on both sides of the Eurasian landmass due to, in part, the, the the economic plight of countries like Germany and Japan. Let's not forget the Nazis and the Japanese militarists, um, what do you want to call them? Obviously, they had their ideological you know, repugnance motivations, but also they were responding to, this was the, 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 the non-socialist response to a, a series of economic and political uh, dilemmas in Germany being an overcrowded, resource-poor, land-poor peasantry, uh, and a very unproductive agricultural sector, in the context in which everyone could see the material privileges of the American, the newly ascended American middle class, and there was a conte- contestation about how to achieve that sort of um, that sort of prosperity for European countries as well. And of course, unfortunately, th- this was framed around racial lines and along uh, neo. Colonial, not new colonial, but it was sort of the, the last big colonial land grab in the East, which was what was the war, what the war was really about. And to me, the way in which all of this could have kind of gone differently, if if European affairs had been settled in an earlier period, in which uh, in which you could have ended up with something like a European Union dominated by Germany, which is in some sense how it was over the last decades which then also didn't need the United States as a stabilizing factor, but also didn't actually um, involve the ascendancy of the United States as the global military and industrial superpower. Because let's not forget, the, the, the what brings the U.S. out of the Depression is the war and the war spending and the, the shift of industry to the West Coast and population to the West Coast. That's what makes the U.S. an industrial military power. So the, the ur-catastrophe uh, of the 20th century was the First World War, and had that turned out in a way that's favorable to Germany in the starting months of the war, I think we would have avoided um, uh, most of the catastrophes of the of the following decades. And the geopolitical, um, uh, it's hard to imagine American hegemony in this context. I should say it also is premised on the notion that imperial Germany wasn't um, a, a uniquely militaristic, chauvinistic, anti-Semitic place. It certainly was, but not. I, I don't think more so than um, uh, the French Republic or Austria-Hungary, certainly not more than Austria-Hungary or Russia. So I think that sort of Zonderpick hypothesis has to be discarded, and I think it has been in the historical um, mainstream. And um, I should also say that Germany, a few years in the war, had become a military dictatorship. At that point, I think it would be hard to ever support uh, a German victory. But in the I think without even needing a moral, um, uh, having a moral stance on on what kind of country that was, with hindsight, um, we would have avoided a lot of bloodshed and instability um, for many decades to come. So the the first battle of the Marne is where it all went wrong. 
Yeah, yeah. I was I was going to say this is an awful lot of words to say you wanted Germany to win the First World War and Ludendorff <laughs> to become God Emperor of Europe. But I, I basically agree. I think um, if Germany would have been able to win the war and institute a European Union much earlier, which would have removed some of the resource constraints which actually drove Nazi imperialism in the 30s and 40s, then I do think uh, a lot of bloodshed could have been stopped. Also, if Britain would have stayed out of the European war and not torn the Euro turn the European war into a world war, then things would have turned out very differently. I do think there is a slightly more left-wing take on this, where you don't need Germany to win the war, but you need a successful German revolution to link up with a successful Russian revolution. And that basically solves the resource problem from a German point of view, where you can keep your industry, but also have Russian grain imports and create this massive agricultural, industrial, developmental multiplier that can then spread the socialist revolution into the rest of Europe. So again, I am agnostic on this. I think Germany winning the First World War is, again, not the worst of counterfactuals to contemplate. But if you want a slightly more politically correct version, you just have to say, OK, what if German Bolshevism was successful and then linked up with the Russian counterpart, then that research problem would have solved as well. And you basically would have had a far more peaceful and less economically rapacious and world historically cataclysmic version of Barbarossa. <laughs> <laughs> well, I should say that this is a very good response that, that but by 1917-18, the damage was very much done also in terms of the effect that it had on the German economy and and society. So you would have had some extremely reactionary pan-German um, racist far-right movements, I think, nonetheless. And, and also as a backlash to a Bolshevik victory in Germany. So maybe the, the less risky but a bit less uh, ap ap appetizing version for people on the left like us is, I think, still the Schlieffenplan plan, more or less going to going, um, uh, you're turning out to yeah. people. And, well, you, 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 say, need, yeah. you needed a German equivalent of the Russian Civil War. You basically needed to kill all the German whites, and that would have been tough. <laughs> It's true, but the other point that I would make that the Prussian elite, the aristocracy, was, was profoundly reactionary. Everyone, this is uh, it doesn't really need restating. But the Prussian state was a different creature, um, and, and also Germany had um, some underrated liberal, uh, I think, uh, currents, the, the largest women's movement, the most militant labor movement, um, and some of the more vaguely progressive institutions. I think that's sometimes overlooked and. Um, uh, yeah, I think I think I think it would have been less bad if you could have somehow gotten rid of the Junkers in the process. Um, but um, it, it's not. Yeah. I think people, people underestimate how 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 far the Prussian state has come. Um, I should, however, say that there's the issue of European imperialism. The European empires would have remained remained more or less intact uh, globally, and so that's also a kind of factual that is hard to com contemplate for anyone who you know it, anyone in this moral universe yeah. doesn't want that to happen. History. And this is what Weber always said in his reading groups before the war. He says the issue with German royalty is that they've never been guillotined, unlike the British and the French. And this is where the assault on the Junkers was so crucial. But at the same time, if you look at German attitudes pre-war, whether you were Jewish or even black, and this becomes very clear in Du Bois's writings about Willemar in Germany, where he's openly Bismarckian, said it was one of the most progressive, both scientifically, but also morally and politically, look at the labor movement places in the world at that point and it's a real real tragedy that the first world war basically sent it down this death spiral which culminated in 1939. 
Yeah, I, I recommend everyone to read um, just to have a different point of view. Uh, W.E.B. Du Bois or Du Bois's um, not memoirs, but his writings on his time in Imperial Germany, where he stayed seated, never had, or maybe had one or two racist incidents in his has in his entire um, stay there, but fit in seamlessly with the educated bourgeoisie there. Of course, it was very stratified along class lines, and he very much presented as someone of the upper class, the way he dressed and the way he talked and um, his education, but um, he had a very dim view on American society and American race relations by comparison. But I think nowadays we don't see it that way. We would never, we would never deem the United States at the time as a less liberal place than Imperial Germany, but in some sense it was. No, no Juncker ever called me the N-word or something like that. <laughs> um, yeah, well, we'll have to, I like that counterfactual. Um, we maybe I'll have to consult with the others. Maybe we have to change our podcast logo from the Morgenthau plan to the Schlieffen plan for, uh, for when it all went wrong. Yeah, don't, don't, do, don't do an episode on Aaron Snolter and why he was right next. <laughs> <laughs> and just one last thing before I let you guys go. I really appreciate this conversation. Uh, I know, you know you're, you're both uh, have your, your great political analysis on Twitter, but in, in interspersed a little bit of cultural criticism every now and then. So mm. we don't usually do this on the podcast. But I wanted to ask if you could think of maybe one song and one movie each that you sort of think think sort of symbolizes or sums up or, or somehow embodies Europe either today or in the past. I'm going to go for a really easy one. And that is just our podcast theme. So Gigi D'Agostino, uh, a real Eurotrash classic. I don't think you need anything else. I, I still think it's one of the most beautiful products of the Maastricht order and of post-history. Um, it should be cherished. And maybe for a movie, I'd say L'Auberge Espagnol, which is an awful movie, but which I once compared to the European Union's battleship Potemkin. It's a really effective propaganda device in that it painted this utopian picture of Erasmus exchange students fucking abroad, as they say. And um, this is the utopia that was promised to us in the 1990s. Unfortunately, it hasn't really mm. come true. Those are two admirable and admirably trashy choices. Uh, I fully support them, but it's sort of it then it's now incumbent upon me to be less trashy. Uh, and I think the obvious uh, choice here is um, the Grand Illusion, which is the the famous movie about uh, the, you know French and French prisoners of war during the First World War. And just because the Grand Illusion is all people think the Grand Illusion refers to um, the differences between na nations and why would they be at war with each other when they actually would get along personally. I don't think so. My, I have a less sanguine view of, of, of that movie. I think the grand illusion refers to the illusion that we can ever supersede these differences uh, successfully. Um, and note this was this was made during the phony war, so in the in the um, or rather right before I think the conflict broke out uh, in, in the in Second World War broke out. That is so. I, I obviously my view of Europe is premised on us being able to overcome those difficulties, but it's it's obviously not a hard task. But my point is, it's not, not an easy task. My point is that the, the withering away of these European nation states is, I think, the most important world historical project. Um, or one of the most important ones at the moment. I think that's the goal we should we should never lose sight of, I think. It's good. I like it. I think I, I guess it's not a film, but, you know, I think Emily in Paris just sums it all up because you're never going to get rid of our <laughs> stupid tourists and our stupid bullshit. 
So the theme of European subordination to the U.S. So that about sums it up. If if Ludendorff had won, then Emily in Paris would never have made. And this seems like an extremely convincing knockdown argument. Well, the other the other really interesting counterfactual for that is what uh, what a massive groups of German immigrants in the U.S. are what their cultural influence is without having to assimilate completely during the first world war and if you have just like actual like group like wisconsin or something is like an almost like a german state in there and have huge huge swaths of the country that don't give up the german language and their german identity uh, so, but more yeah. so you would never have the influx of um european and particular central european scientists in the 30s and 40s yes exactly which, which turn um the u.s from a mediocre power intellectually and technologically into the leading power that's the, the the other sort of counterfactual that you have to contemplate in that regard. Yeah, you would have Bratwurst in, in Brooklyn and no Europeans would be for Princeton. So that would be amazing. <laughs> but I agree that I would rather take, um, I, I would burn down the library in Leuven 10 times over if it meant we could never have Emily in Paris. So <laughs> I totally agree. I'm, I'm on board with that trade-off. Yeah. Yeah, okay, the, the now things, the things it could have been. <laughs> now we're getting to really tricky territory. I'm, I'll refrain from judging you, but I, I think Ludendorff and Emily in Paris was a better kind of thing. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's a great place to leave it. Um, thanks so much, Dominic Loisner and Anton Jaeger, for the great chat about what could have been in Germany and what is in Europe. Thanks to you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Thanks again to Dominic and Anton for coming on the pod. Yeah, it was a really fun discussion. Learned a lot and had a good time. You know, the, the Germany should have won the First World War take is, is a fairly novel one for me. And I liked <laughs> I like spelling out the ramifications of that. And if you want more from the three of us chatting about Europe, just stay patient and sign up for our Patreon. It should be out there in a couple days. So thanks again to the Eurotrash guys and thanks to all the supporters and listeners. Thanks everyone. Tschüss. Thanks. Catch you next time. Tschüss.